0: I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum.
1: Oh shit. Sputter it, spudel it, sputter it. I will And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 62 for April 2017. 1962 was the year of whatever happened to
0: Baby Jane. Uh, but it was also the year of Carnival of Souls, the sort of groundbreaking, low-budget spook story that will seem horribly dated to many people nowadays, but was hugely innovative
1: and influential way back in 62. I'm Duncan, and yes, I know Simon. He's a friend from work. Uh, <laughs> the thought trailer managed to do... Um, what no Marvel trailer has managed to do for me, and that's genuinely made me excited for a Thor movie. Yeah. Um, but I suspect that's down to three elements. Uh, Kate Blanchett is a powerful villain. Oh, my goodness. That brilliantly timed and unexpected joke at the climax, and, of course, Led Zepp blasting immigrants mm. on. So, like, kind of a doff of the cap to the trailer makers, you know what um, I mean? Goldblum as well. Oh, right, yeah, yeah Goldblum, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, but Blanchette, Um, she's one of my favourite actresses. Yeah, and as yeah. we
1: were talking about with Carol last month, the yes. yeah, last couple of months, we've yeah, yeah, both yeah. been raving about it, so yeah, it's fantastic, really yeah. exciting, but it's a really well-made oh, trailer. Me too.
0: Yeah. Hey, before we kick on to uh, what we've been watching and everything, uh, I made a great discovery this month as well. Uh, I was uh, talking to a colleague at work at Kessa about Cemetery Man, Yeah. and uh, I thought, oh, well, I'll send her a copy of the trailer, you know, look it up on YouTube and send her the trailer. And I found Cemetery Man on YouTube, the entire film. Oh, really? Yeah, so anyone listening, watch Cemetery Man on YouTube because not only is the whole film up there, it's at 1080p. Oh, wow. So you can watch this amazing film in full HD on YouTube for free. Oh, that's great. And it's a great zombie film. It's uh, uh, this hilarious art film crossed with a zombie film you know. yeah
1: it's it's fantastic i really enjoy cemetery man it's based on dylan dog isn't it yeah that's right and uh dylan dog's this great comic that you can buy at like train station kiosks and stuff in italy mm. and they release one every month or maybe even more than that so you yeah. just go past and there's a new one there and they have these great covers and it, oh it's just wonderful i can't understand a thing that's going on because it's all in italian but yeah. it's entertaining as hell yeah
0: sure um so, Simon, what have you been watching? What have I been watching? Well, this month I took the pulse of the state of the modern Hollywood action film via two very different movies. Firstly, I watched the biggest movie in the world, <laughs> The Fate of the Furious. And then Darren Bevan took me along on a date with cinema's most headshotty hero, John Wick, and naturally, John Wick Chapter 2. Now, a straight-up comparison would be grossly unfair. Uh, Fate of the Furious, after all, aims to be a broad, accessible, crowd-pleaser of a film, while John Wick Chapter 2 is a lovelier blood splatter. Uh, Yeah, I think we can talk about what they do differently as action films. Mm -hmm. Um, For me, the Fast and the Furious franchise had a peak with Part 5. And sure, that was when The Rock made its appearance. But It was more the muscularity of the action scenes that impressed me. Uh, The third act, towing a safe strung between two muscle cars while driving through the streets of a South African city, uh, was delightfully unhinged and maniacally inspired, I felt. Mm -hmm. But the films that followed often ran the risk of going too far with those action scenes, pushing them from creative, bonkers mayhem to pure cartoon silliness. That tendency hurts Fate of the Furious, which is action scenes that lack any weight, you know, performed in a manner that has no stakes. Occasionally the bombast works. I adored a shot of synchronised zombie cars tearing through the streets of New York like a clockwork army in like, perfect synchronisation. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, nothing in the Fate of the Furious manages to look remotely real. Yeah. Uh, that'll be because a lot of it is CGI, I guess But even scenes that should be real Have no weight to them An opening street race in Cuba Replete with a, by now expected Learing shots of scantily clad women Could be from anywhere It certainly lacks the specificity Of a place like, actually, say, real Cuba I mean, it doesn't even look like the country I don't I, And I, I presume there are real actors and real cars in, At least some of the time <laughs> But no one behaves like a normal human being Or talks like a normal human being and by the way, it's a huge mistake to have Vin Diesel's Dom desert his team. All it does is prove how little he contributes to the d- d- to the dynamic, how bland his performance is, and how easily Dwayne Johnson and Jason Statham can steal a film away from him when he's not there to hog the limelight.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, it's, yeah. uh, boy, having him on his own is a huge mistake for his character. <laughs> but if The Fate of the Furious is something akin to a lumbering road train or shiny CGI surfaces and not enough under the hood, John Wick Chapter 2 is the lean, powerful engine of carnage that Fast and the Furious franchise should be, and mm-hmm. probably used to be. Wick starts with Reeves reclaiming his stolen muscle car and almost destroying it as he takes down the gangsters who took it. Everything about this opening is tough and gritty. The way the tyres spin and shudder across the wet concrete, the satisfyingly grunty smashes as Wick's Mustang crunches into the yellow New York City cabs chasing him, and the awesome sight of his car being struck and Reeves' body hurtling out the side and straight into a fight. From there, the film wallows a bit as they set up a reason for the retired assassin to come out of retirement. But it's soon back on its feet as John Wick heads to Italy to take down a criminal kingpin and then has to fight for his life once a $7 million bounty is put on his head in retribution. Mm -hmm. There's so much to enjoy. The fight scenes are pleasantly brutal and fast-paced, while being clearly framed and put together without the use of, like, hectic edits. And there are some individually, just startlingly beautiful shots. Reeves, backlit by soft orange light as he leaves the scene of an assassination. A swirling camera as he stands on a rooftop in Italy. His nemesis flanked by statues in an art gallery. And after a lady from Shanghai entered the dragon and inspired shootout in a mirrored art installation, <laughs> there's this amazing shot of Keanu striding towards us as mirrored walls pull apart in front of him. And in this like really surreal manner where you don't know what you're looking at, whether you're looking at him or a mirror or a yep. you know. Um Lawrence Fishburne gets a crowd pleasing role, allowing for a matrix family reunion. <laughs> Uh, Common is superb as a bodyguard driven by the criminal code to take down Wick. And Ian McShane is delicious as the man who runs the Hitman Hotel in New York. But I also really dug the fact that we got to see Franco Nero performing the same royal role in Rome. Yeah. You know, as the alternative to McShane. Particularly when he asked John Wick, with all seriousness, if he's in Rome to take out the Pope. <laughs> But of course, Reeves is once again the stoic centre of the film, navigating through this Harry Potter-esque world of hitmen and gangsters, trying to survive and play by the rules while dispatching armies of villains with efficient bone-crunching speed. It might just be the role he was born to play. Right. But look, being hardened and seemingly unemotional isn't the same thing as blandness, of course. Which brings me back to the Fate of the Furious. (laughs) And one more thing I hated about that film. The team doesn't need, and we certainly don't need as viewers, Scott Eastwood. (laughs) It's tolerable at the start when he's a by-the-books lackey of Kurt Russell and everyone hates him as much as we do as viewers. But when at the end of the film, everyone's clinking beer bottles with him and giving him those little uh, approving, you know, you done good kid kind of nods, you know, Uh, it's positively infuriating. I know there's a good-looking white guy-shaped gap in the team roster at the moment, (laughs) but Scott Eastwood isn't the answer. (laughs) In fact, I can't think of any question aside from what do you get when you dull Clint Eastwood down by about 200%, where Scott (laughs) Eastwood is the answer. In this film, he's Poochie in a Porsche. He's Ricky Nelson singing with the Duke and Dean Martin by the fireside in <laughs> Rio Bravo. And what's even worse, you just know that he's going to be in Fast and the Furious 9. Uh, well, as a fellow Eastwood, I'd like to lead to his defence, but I'll, I'll defer to you on that one. You can't, man. No, you it's... can't. Look, as 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 a fellow Eastwood, just remember how great his dad is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, That's interesting to hear both of those. Uh, Fate and the Furious struck me as that just from seeing the the trailers. Even the poster... It just felt like a you know, a CGI oh, look, kind of blandness. Totally. And there's something else, and, and I feel
0: weird even saying this, but at this point, no one can be hurt in a car. If you're inside of a car, at one point, people drive around in a car and park their cars around a guy to block him from a fireball because mm. cars are invulnerable. <laughs> if you're in a car in this movie franchise, you can drive off buildings and cliffs and get hit by a thousand rounds of rocket fire or whatever. Mm. And yet this is a franchise established by a man who died (laughs) in a car because he was driving it too fast. And I find that, how do you
1: justify that in a way? Do you know what
0: I mean? Yeah, Yeah. At some point, there's got to be real world repercussions in this film.
1: Yeah. It's kind of tone deaf, isn't it really? Yeah. To to reality. (laughs) To its own history. Yeah. It's it's, it's amazing
0: to me. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have action films where people are taking risks and doing exciting things and, Mm. Put in jeopardy. But there's no jeopardy in this film of these characters. Yeah. Um, certainly not while they're driving a car.
1: Yeah. Uh, anyway, my rant's <laughs> over. <laughs> uh, how about you? Yeah, what have you been watching? Well, look, following my commitment to a review-free movie choice uh, in the last month's podcast where I said I'd watch a movie, just kind of, that looks interesting, and watch it, read nothing about it. Um, I kind of uh, learned a lesson, <laughs> which was I watched The Trust starring Elijah Wood and Nicolas Cage as two cops who become intrigued by a mysterious vault. The possibilities of what inside becomes more enticing the longer they investigate. The film begins as a slice of ambivalence and builds toward an ever-increasing inevitable end. The quirkiness of the cops, bored with their lives, mopping up the aftermath of Las Vegas' deadbeat's lives is the most fun the film ever gets, and in the end, it doesn't have enough to say or a strong enough twist in the tale to reward the viewer. The setting is the thing that I enjoyed, which was Las Vegas and these cops who are kind of not corrupt, but just there's no heroism in, in them at all. They, it just feels like, oh, this is a job, you know? And so Elijah Wood just is a bit of a stoner. Nicolas Cage, he starts off as this kind of loser cop, and then as it goes on, kind of turns more and more psychotic as, it, as the film goes on. I quite enjoyed the beginning, the unusual uh, atmosphere, but it really did turn into very predictable uh, towards the end, which is a shame.
0: I remember seeing the trailer for this and thinking it looked quite fun.
1: Yeah. And it's not, uh, that, that's the mistake that you are led to believe, there, these, especially in the first half year, maybe the first like 20 minutes, you're like, Oh, this is going to be like quite weird and quirky. And, and it's not, it, unfortunately it's not It kind of, just keeps. yeah. Uh, but the one that I did see, uh, which I didn't want to talk about was Imperium. Um, oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Daniel Radcliffe is excellent as an FBI agent. Infiltrating the white supremacy movement in the states to investigate a possible terrorist plot. The film was great at showing the various levels of like the National Front, from lowly skinheads to militia to intellectuals. Uh, Radcliffe excels in the dual role of an idealistic federal agent Nate playing a hateful ex-marine. Uh, so it's just kind of a role within a role. Yeah. His frustration at not being able to crack through the posturing and gloating talk to the real plot ironically makes his anger even more appealing to his targets. Uh, which I liked. So while the film shows things that appear in like every neo-fascist film from Romper Stomper to Green Room to American History X, you know, you get especially like hardcore punk gigs, uh, rallies, harassing interracial couples in the streets – But one thing I hadn't seen until Imperium was a Nazi wedding at night under the romantic setting of giant burning crosses and swastikas. Wow. (laughs) That was just like, okay, I haven't seen that. Nate is a quiet blank slate of a character. But rather than showing the mental toll it takes on Nate being undercover in such an organisation, it shows the emotional commonality between humans, uh, how only really belief separates us. It's a surprisingly optimistic film on an insidious, vile subject – and Radcliffe is to be applauded for another interesting choice. And his American accent is flawless. And I think he's visibly growing as an actor. Yeah. And uh, he's really good in this. He's got a lot of presence. Probably the first film I've seen him in where I forget Harry Potter. Yeah, right. Even though he's been in other interesting films. I haven't seen Swiss Army Man. But, you know, even when I saw, like, The Woman in Black, you yep. know, I still go, hey, this is a good film. Yep. But he's a bit Harry Potter. And this one is the first time where he he has... Uh, an intensity and a believability about him, and he's driven. It's, he, he's, a, he's an easy character to get behind. But yeah, it's an interesting film. Uh, I recommend checking it out.
0: Oh, cool! That sounds great. Another film you should um, I've seen the trailer; it looks really good. Yeah, I really like how Radcliffe's career is progressing. Yeah. I know what you mean about the woman in black. I remember watching that, and it was uh, my, one of my few problems with it. Was I still kind of had that Potterishness? he yeah. didn't seem old enough or wise enough to be quite believable. Yeah. Um, although I love that film. I suppose Army Men was probably the turning point for me, where, mm-hmm. I, where, I, where I'd forgotten all of that back yeah. of where he comes from. But, yeah, this sounds great, man. You're late. Plan on making a habit of this. What? You're fired. But I just... You make a valid point. Welcome back. You don't look too pumped. Come on, let's get pumped. This is the place where dreams are made or destroyed. Depends on how you feel about working at a water park. Um,
1: we have a situation over at Harpoon Lagoon. Is it a homicide? Yeah, it's a homicide. I knew this day would come. So Simon,
0: what's the news? Look, as you probably all know, I'm still a fan of the Humble DVD. I like having them around. I like their covers, the sensation when you crack open the box, the extras, the possibility maybe of a commentary track. And I love the fact that the range of films on DVD is still so much broader than any other format. But I also understand that I'm in love with the dying format here. There are no DVD rental stores near me anymore, and I'm reduced to scouring second-hand stores, thrift shops, and trade me to hunt for classics to add to my collection. But recently Darren Bevan bought something to my attention. RO Video down in Wellington have come up with an, an adopt-a-movie scheme, where customers can pay a fee to have a DVD added to the RO collection with their name beside it on the case and on RO's website, plus free lifetime rental of that film. It's their way of ensuring they can still source rare and hard-to-find titles to add to their deep breath here, folks. 23,000-plus title library. Oh,
1: that's Awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic. That, that's almost as many as you've
0: got. Yeah, it's getting close, <laughs> eh? Yeah, yeah. I'll have to lift my game just to stay ahead of them. Um, here's the thing. I don't know if this is the answer. It's nice for the dedicated fans of Aro who can now have this movie with their name beside it, but it's not going to spread wider than that, I think. It's, it's very nice to be reminded that someone out there is still fighting the good fight, though. Championing range over instant accessibility and you know what ro is actually pretty damn easy to use they have an online store and will email rentals straight to you much like fatso still do so if you're looking for that hard to find title please do look up ro video oh that's fantastic i hadn't heard of that yeah I, I i use them i've had them deliver uh, dvds to me nice. and i've got such a deep range that
1: there's a lot of films we go
0: oh i really want to see that can't find it anywhere Cool. Um, RO will have a really good chance of having it.
1: And so th- what's their website called? Is it just RO.co.nz? Oh. Okay. Yeah, I think it
0: is. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, RO is A-R-O. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, they're down in Wellington. They'll email, uh, they'll, sorry, they'll courier movies to you. They'll arrive like in a day. Nice. Um, and You've got them for a, a week. They come with the
1: return pack package in it, so they're really easy to return. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's reasonably priced too. That's great. It's good to hear. Well, you may have thought Paul Verhoeven might decide to keep his recent track record of long gaps between films, but if anything, the director seems to have been reinvigorated by the equal parts, condemnation and congratulations he received for his Oscar-nominated return to form L. The playfully nutty Dutch director hasn't gone running into the welcome arms of Hollywood, though, but instead will once again release a French-speaking movie, which only has four things known: a title: "Blessed Virgin." Secondly, a star." Virgin Afrida, who had a co starring role in Elle. Thirdly, a controversy baiting poster. A faceless nun with a hint of nipple showing through her uh, top. And finally, the name of the book it will be adapted from, which is Immodest Acts: The Life of a Lesbian Nun in Renaissance Italy, which is the kind of film name you'd expect to get if you entered the word religion into a hastily constructed Paul Verhoeven title generator link someone had sent you. Uh, and the story is plenty for Verhoeven to sink his teeth into. A 17th century nun becomes noticed within the church due to her visions from God and being afflicted with stigmata, only to be brought down as a charlatan amid claims of being a liar and a sexual deviant. Wow. So, yeah, um, Paul Verhoeven. It's going to be an interesting one. We'll see if that gets Oscar nominated. Yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, man, that sounds great. <laughs> I'm queuing for that already. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. All, it's,
1: like, uh, it's, it's almost like a Lars von Trier kind of thing, isn't it? It's yeah. very much like that, actually.
0: Cannes 2017 is coming. The films have been announced, and amidst the controversy over retouching the poster to slim down, spoiler, movie crush Claudia Cardinale, I mean, why would you do that? Uh, another smaller but no less significant issue has emerged. Netflix. You see, Netflix has a couple of titles in competition this year. Uh, Bong Joon-ho's Okja and the Meyerwitz stories. And the National Federation of French Cinemas are questioning how a streaming service can have movies in competition, which has caused Netflix to make promises about organising a limited theatrical run for their titles. Now, the situation is way more complex than my little brief stab at a summary there. But it raises really fascinating questions about what makes a movie a movie. If it's only available on my computer, is it still a movie? Mm. Uh, Now, I know the majority of the films I I watch are on my laptop or my TV, but I still go to the cinema. And I know there's value in that. More importantly, I think, there's a particular value in building a film's reputation in that way. Sure, the Netflix model has been a boon for independent filmmakers who can now make real coin by selling their films to the streaming behemoth. But are they getting attention that way? Would Manchester by the Sea and Moonlight become critical darlings if they premiered on Netflix? Uh, I don't think they would. In part, that's because Netflix aren't really doing the best job they could of making sure we all know about their film content. Mm. But here's the thing. I'm not bashing Netflix here. And although it might, might sound like it, I'm not putting this whole model up on the tree of woe either. Because like it or not, this is the way we watch now. This is how we, you know, get mm. our content. But it's also a new world. And streaming sites like Netflix need to figure out a better way to do the business. I just don't think they've really got there yet.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, it yeah. we're, we're talking about Imperium as well. That got a really, really brief release uh, and then was released on streaming site somewhere as well. Yeah.
0: I think a lot of this is falling on word of mouth and and people writing good reviews for us to find these films. Yeah. You know, it's it's not I I think if Imperium probably hadn't been well reviewed by people who care and are passionate about film, you wouldn't hear about it.
1: Yeah, that's right. You yeah. Know? It it also leads into the um the fact that the um that ESPN documentary, the one on OJ, you know, made in America, won an Oscar and that's a m eight part mini series, basically. Yeah. It's not
0: Yeah, amazing, eh?
1: Yeah. So it, it it is starting to morph, isn't it? Because of the way that people are viewing things. The box office receipts for 2016, I think, were the lowest since the 1920s. Right. The amount of people through the turnstiles is less and less each year. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of Cannes, NME have released a list of films that will make a splash on the shores of the French Riviera, many of which, appropriately enough, are informed by the ongoing refugee crisis. Michael Haneke's latest happy ending is actually set in Cannes and focuses on a local French family separated from the humanitarian crisis developing around them. And while Hennaker may be using it as a background for human drama, Oscar-winning actress and first-time director Vanessa Redgrave is confronting the issue head-on with her debut documentary *Sea Sorrow*. And Nicole Kidman is back with a vengeance, appearing in no less than four films in competition at Cannes. Yeah, and one of them is a remake of the Clint Eastwood western *The Beguiled*. Yes. Directed by Sofia Coppola and starring Colin Farrell, uh, who will reteam with Kidman. In the lobster director, Yorgos Lanthomas' latest, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, which Farrell described as bleak, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which I love. The other interesting thing I read about Farrell is that um, he f- changed agents. He fired his agent about two years ago. Right. And that's why he's appearing in all these films all of a sudden, uh, such as The Lobster, Fantastic Beasts. just changed agents and they changed you know, his career. Great stuff. He was really good in The Lobster. Yeah, I thought he was fantastic in it. Yeah. yeah. I've always felt he's a fine
0: actor. He's just, um, he has kind of that Ryan Reynolds issue of, of occasionally being pushed into being like a big movie star, I guess, and a yeah. leading man in a way that's not really comfortable for him, I, th- I don't think.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. But Gear um, yeah, Karns is definitely one to check out. It sounds like a lot of good films. Oh, I'm
0: really excited by The Beguiled. Yeah. And, and finally for me, Ben Wheatley, the director of Spoiler Alert fabes, Kill List and A Field in England, is about to start filming his latest Freak Shift what a title! Wheatley right. describes the film about a bunch of misfit, uh, misfit cops fighting nocturnal underground beasties as monsters, shotguns, trucks, fighting at night, and it's in the future. Things coming out like crabs, stuff with claws. It's a kind of '50s B movie done through the prism of Hill Street Blues and Doom. <laughs> I'm fizzing with excitement. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that sounds amazing to me. Uh, we will start Arnie Hammer and Alicia Vikander, and I also kind of liked us with this article that he. He pre-visualized the shootouts by creating the action space in Minecraft, which is awesomely innovative, I think, you know? Yeah. And just the cheapest, but why not? What a great yeah. way to do things, yeah.
1: One thing I really like about Wheatley is how prolific he is, mm. and he just, he just keeps moving forward. Yeah. A, a really curious director who's yeah. quite prolific, because that doesn't really happen. Someone yeah. who's prolific is generally like Woody Allen, who just like punches Woody Allen out. Clint Eastwood. Yeah, yeah, Clint Eastwood, and they just kind of yeah. punch out stuff, which is sometimes a little bit unremarkable, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, you know, they can do amazing things, yeah. but generally... The majority of it's not that striking. Uh, yeah. And your visionary directors usually take forever. You know, is your Terrence Malick or your David Lynch. So it's it, it's good. I like that about Wheatley. Yeah. It's exciting, I'm sure. Maybe as the older he gets the more, he'll slow down a bit. But it's really good that he's pumping them out at this rate. Yeah. Freak shift. Freak shift. What great a title. title. That's great. <laughs> and the horror fan in you is really... Um, oh, eyes wide. And in grumpy old men news, uh, there have <laughs> been... <laughs> There have been two refreshingly honest reactions to films. The first from Harrison Ford, who, when asked whether he was looking forward to the new Han Solo film, he said, not really. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, of course, he tried to uh, make up for the comments saying he was a fan of the uh, the actor who was taking the role. Uh, but he thought it would also be a little bit weird. But you can yeah. actually watch it online. And the great thing is he's actually saying it right next to George Lucas. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so George Lucas is there. He's like, not really. And Lucas just, wouldn't care. No, no, Lucas he'd just be yeah. counting as four billion dollars or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Less diplomatically, Ian McShane went full assault on 2012's Snow White and The Huntsman, claiming that he and the other six dwarves were the best of best thing in the film. Uh and he's although not, he's not wrong. <laughs> and although he appreciates the income, he just wanted to say to the filmmakers, hey guys, get it together. Um which I love. Um, McShane's fantastic. He, he's so honest. He's so honest. Did you ever hear that one he said about the um, Game of Thrones? Yeah, tits oh, and dragons. Tits and dragons get a life. <laughs> like <laughs> about giving spoilers away for Game of Thrones. Yeah. He said, Oh, it's just tits and dragons, get a life. Yeah. And um yeah, he's fantastic. He just he just doesn't care. He
0: is so good. Like I say, he's great in John Wick too. Yeah. Um there's this uh just to return to that for just a moment, there's a scene at the end where he's talking to Wick and, and Wick's about the fact that Witt's going to now have everyone on his back. And, and reads, he delivers it beautifully. He says, let them know I'll kill them. I'll kill them all. And McShane goes,
1: of course you will. <laughs> he's, he's delighted to be able to say it. <laughs> yeah, no,
0: he's great. I love him, though.
1: Eh? Yeah, yeah. Well, ever since he was in Sexy Beast, where, you know,
0: he's quite frightening in that. So. Yeah, because for me, before that, it was just lovejoy.
1: Yeah, that's
0: right. Contemplate this on the tree of wool. And welcome to... The old favorite part of the show, uh, The Tree of Woe, where we get to punish cinematic offenders, uh, bit people, movies, whatever that annoyed us this month. And look, my one is a tree of woe 12 years in the making. A tree of woe that makes me want to turn back the clock. to so When my colleague and I discussed the film that won the Oscar in 2005, the film was, of course, Crash. We did a bit of an Oscar special and we watched it. And um, Now, that film was not great. I think you'll agree it was not yeah, great. I yeah, no, No, it was less than great. And we, I felt, gently eviscerated it. We weren't too harsh on it, I thought. We were just you know No, no, there's some good stuff in there. Yeah. But it could be much worse, I think, our review. Much worse because this month I finally watched Brokeback Mountain and sweet lord, there is no way on earth Crash can be considered a superior film. Look, I've always held that as long as all of the nominees in a particular category more or less deserve to be there, then I'm okay with whoever actually comes out on top. But there's no way around the fact that Crash has no right to be in the same conversation as Brokeback. With its flat characters, obvious messages, and crude stereotypes, Crash went up against a film of well-honed characters, beautifully performed, that found its universality in a very specific story, a story that's been kind of crudely described as gay cowboys. But Brokeback Mountain isn't about gay cowboys, it's about unrequited love, it's about anyone who desperately wanted something that the world wouldn't let them have. That's a story that speaks to everyone in a way that Crash kind of seems to speak to no one, because the interweaving stories feel false especially when you've just watched Brokeback Mountain. So I'm not going to do one of my I-don't-know-who-to-put-up-on-the-tree kind of rants. I'm tempted to say me, obviously, for leaving it this, this damn long to watch such a great film. But really, the Academy, who chose The Shallow Crash as their best film of the year, need to suffer for this choice. Heck, even Paul Haggis, who wrote and directed Crash, thinks Brokeback should have won. So if I could hop in my cinematic time machine of choice, I'd go back to 2005, Find those who voted Crash over Brokeback Mountain. Make sure they got to spend some serious time rethinking that choice on the Tree of Woe.
1: I agree. Uh, Brokeback Mountain is amazing. And uh, I actually think um, Dark Knight fans will be disappointed. I actually think it's Heath Ledger's finest performance as in Brokeback Mountain. Um, I,
0: he is a revelation in that. He, he's
1: amazing. And I always remember Daniel Day Lewis winning. Uh, he won for There Will Be Blood, which is the same year, I think. Right. Heath Ledger died, and Lewis cleaned up the awards for The Will Be Blood. So in the speech, he said, you know, he really moved me in that scene, in the, the final scene, in the, in the trailer in the trailer at yeah. the end. And, you know, specifically went to that scene, and you can see what exactly he's talking about. It's, Absolutely. It's such a wonderful film. Yeah, and, and it, it, you know, as we've said before, Jake Jollenhall's one of our favourite actors at the moment, just yeah. for his choices yes. and, and the performances he gives. Yes. And the fact that he's outdone by Heath Ledger is saying something, you know, because John Hall's yeah. an amazing actor. So Yeah, it, it, you're yeah. absolutely
0: right. It's a testament to how strong Ledger is in that role Yeah, that he does, yeah, like you say, outshine John Hall. He's doing great work as well. Yeah, that's right. Know? Yeah. No, it's a wonderful film. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And uh, how about you? What's, uh, what's the new <laughs> idea this month? Well, look, we don't
1: like to get too political on the show. No. and And I think we can all agree that there is one place we don't want to be, and that is heading towards a nuclear holocaust. Now, whether it's the President of the United States' fault, the Supreme Leader of the People's Democratic Republic of Korea's fault, or Seth Rogen and James Franco's fault, I don't know. (laughs) I blame (laughs) Franco. But but I know we may not be in the situation of one man made simple and different life choices. That man is the subject of an amazingly candid documentary that premiered at the Film Festival last year. That man, of course, is Anthony Weiner, former congressman of New York. The film titled Weiner follows him during his run for mayor of New York City after he had already been disgraced for sending texts and photos to women other than his wife. The film plays like an excruciating feature-length episode of Veep. Yes, politicians are human, but do they have to be this human? But Wiener's tragedy unfolds on thickening layers with each step. Sure, his decisions are his own, and the film makes the case that his private life doesn't affect his policies. Yes, he humiliates his family, but there is one section I just couldn't get out of my head, and that was the volunteer crew he had working for him calling people for donations and mobilizing the support including his elderly mother. Wow. She has never interviewed, but there is a shot of her on the phone calling up people saying, "Hi, I'm Anthony Weiner's mum" and asking for money and support. And the volunteer crew themselves are interviewed and say how they are a laughing stock, you know, amongst their friends and their professional, you know, kind of counterparts. Um but they believe in Weiner's policies and they're swayed by his passion. And then he gets busted again for a second time, Ugh. sexting porn stars. The hubris and entitlement, the righteous anger that Weiner drums up for the hypocrites, as he calls them. And he's complaining that politics is dirty and unfair. I'm incredulous that he's incredulous about it. Yeah. And it also makes him look like pathological. Uh, it just makes one want to weep because if he hadn't imploded, he could well have been the Democratic national candidate at the last election or at least the vice presidential nomination and we might not be marching towards nuclear oblivion but aside from this political detour it's the human carnage that weiner leaves behind as he climbs up and nails himself to the tree of woe complaining to the vultures about how cruel fate is but maybe he should have a look down at those faces who believed in you and your poor mother because they deserved a lot better Wow, it's really sad. It just felt so bad for them. You knew what was coming. That's the thing with the story. You know what's yeah, coming. Yeah. So every time these people interviewed who have already got this abusive relationship, where they're like, "We know he's done this stuff, but we, you know he wants a second chance. and We're going to give him." And then, you know what I mean? And and you see him decline in front of your eyes. It's an incredible film actually, for the, the the candid nature of it. Yeah,
0: um, it's staggering that really they got to make this film and to have that event happen while they're making this film. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. And and you just see, you, you you understand his passion, you understand that he does believe in these things. It's a refusal of him to completely take blame. Yeah. You know? He's like, yeah, I did these things, but, you know, these people are hypocrites and, you know, well, what are they getting upset about? We should be focusing on the issues and it's like, dude. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you're a politician. <laughs> I, yeah, his poor mum, though. Yeah. He deserves to be on the tree of woe just for that. Yeah. Spoiler alert. All right. Well, that's uh, podcast
0: 62. So, Duncan... Favourite film? Well,
1: my favourite film was actually a film I didn't speak about, which was, well, it's called The Italian Race in English. Um, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but um, Veloce Come Il Vento, which means fast like the wind. Sounded good. Yeah, well, (laughs) (laughs) probably wasn't. (laughs) I probably told someone to go, you know, screw themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A talented teenage girl's future as a race car driver is thrown into turmoil after tragedy hits. Her junkie older brother appears after years of estrangement to offer both guidance and trouble. Stefano Accorsi won Best Actor at the Donatello Awards. Uh, that's the equivalent of the Oscars and not a prize for Best Teenage Ninja Turtle. <laughs> um, the film is lean and direct. It has charm, humour and darkness. Uh, the car chases play second fiddle to the human drama on screen. Uh, it also boasts probably the best performance of Acorsi's career. He's one of those guys who's just in every Italian film for the last 15 years and a star-making one for the teen actor Matilda De Angelis. Uh While the plot may be predictable, it feels churlish to complain when the characters are so likeable and the action so captivating. And, of course, he's kind of he, – he won the award, and he's really, like, greasy and disgusting, but he's quite a pretty boy actor. So he's kind of, it's kind of right. like Brad Pitt completely playing a junkie, like a toothless junkie. Uh, it's enjoyable, though. If you get a chance to check it out, uh, it's called The Italian Race. Oh, good call, yeah. man. And what about you? What's your favourite one?
0: Oh, well, look, I mean, obviously I love John Wick Chapter 2. Uh, it's just pure cinema, you yeah. know? And it is the, the best pure action cinema I think you're going to see in a long time. And it finished, the finish is just superb, by the way. The, the way it sets up and leans into the idea of a part three. Right. And, you know, I've said it before, there are no good part threes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm really hoping John Wick Chapter 3 bucks that trend because mm. they've done such a great job of setting up the potential of it yeah but of course i also saw life this month with uh ryan reynolds and jay gyllenhaal what? which is a really pleasingly fun riff on um alien uh with some a couple of great twists uh it's not as good as john wick chapter two but i think it, it kind of went into cinema and disappeared so quickly that a lot of people will miss it yeah and it is worth seeking out if you can cool uh but this is Brokeback Mountain, man. Yeah, That's the month I finally, <laughs> after 12 years, caught up with this amazing film. So I broke that mountain all the way. Excellent. Yeah. A
1: couple of Jake Gyllenhaal films then. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No surprise there for us, I guess. No. <laughs> so part two of our um, podcast will be... Betty
0: Davis, Joan Crawford, Beyond the Feud. Yeah. So yeah.
1: Um, we'll put that up next week. We delve into both of these Icons, of extraordinary some. actors, yeah. yeah. Their longevity, their amazing films, um, yep. and and the history. So, yep. um, tune in. We do. It's really exhaustive, and we 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 hope you'll enjoy yeah. it. It and certainly exhausted us. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but
0: but but look, you know, because we all know that the uh, feud is uh, is a massive thing at the moment, and everyone's loving that series. Yeah, but for us, it was really fascinating to look at. Them outside of that Yeah, that's right You know, we'll talk about the feud, of course Because how can you not Yeah But just to talk about
1: who they are Their, their great films and, and, and their legacy as well Yeah, that's right And so uh, the music we're going out to Is um, from that wonderful Thor uh, Ragnarok Is that how you yeah, pronounce it? Yeah, I think that sounds good Yeah, it, 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 the Thor Ragnarok trailer Yeah uh, Which, of course, is Immigrant song by Led Zeppelin But uh, I tell you what That just got me pumped hearing that again. yeah in. And yeah, yeah. Um, I watched the trailer. I, I showed it to my uh, my brother and my my father actually. Yeah. And um, my dad enjoyed it. I mean, he wouldn't watch a superhero thing, but he was laughing along at the at yeah. the trailer. And my brother said, "Man, that's a good song to use, you know, yes. just when that fire's coming, screaming through the, yeah, you know, exploding all of, uh, yeah, the, the place. It's just awesome. So, it is really awesome. Um, yeah, we don't really need to say how great Led Zeppelin are, but no. that's the song we're going out to. So um, perfect choice. And so, thanks to everyone for listening, and we will uh, see you. Well, next week? Yeah, next week. Excellent. from work.